it was a complete delight uh, coming over this morning. The uh, the rain, it wasn't raining uh, in the city or there was, the sun was breaking through and shining on the city as I came from Berkeley over the Richmond Bridge. And so the city was looked like this golden fantasy land, you know, and then came over and entered Marin and it was just like a Chinese landscape painting with the mists and the hills and everything green and it was really uh, quite beautiful, <laughs> quite beautiful. We live, I mean, considering that life is life, uh, we got a really good deal. <laughs> I know sometimes it doesn't feel like it, but uh, conditions don't get too much better. We've lived in a golden age, really, when you think about it. Um, you look at history, you realize that just a couple generations ago, most of us were peasants doing heavy labor. Uh, just a few generations ago, our lifetime was about half of what it is now, the average human life. Uh, we now have access to all of the world's wisdom and cultures and uh, it's just, it's, it's really quite astounding when you think of how much things have changed in the last century or, or two and we get to reap the benefits of it. And still life is hard, you know. I wanted to start, I, I'm going to uh, read a few things and, and share with you some thoughts and then I thought I would throw it open for questions and discussion and see what you want to talk about. Um, I'd like to start with a couple poems. This uh, is reminiscent of, of the Chinese landscape painting. This is a Chinese poet, uh, Sin Chi Chi. In my young days, I never tasted sorrow, but I wanted to become a famous poet. I wanted to get ahead, so I pretended to be sad. Now I am old, and I have known the depths of every sorrow, and I am content to loaf and enjoy the clear winter sky. And this is a poem by Pablo Neruda, because um, what I want to talk about today is identity a little bit, uh, and he's a master of pointing out our identities. The title of the poem is, We Are Many. <laughs> of the many people who I am, who we all are, I can't find a single one. They disappear among my clothes. They've left for another city. When everything seems to be set to show me off as intelligent, the fool I always keep hidden takes over all that I say. At other times, I'm asleep among distinguished people. And when I look for my brave self, a coward unknown to me rushes to cover my skeleton with a thousand excuses. 
When a decent house catches fire, instead of the fireman I summon, an arsonist bursts on the scene, and that's me. What can I do? What can I do to distinguish myself? How can I pull myself together? All the books I read are full of dazzling heroes, always sure of themselves. I die with envy of them. And in films full of wind and bullets, I goggle at the cowboys. I even admire the horses. But when I call for a hero, out comes my lazy old self. So I never know who I am, nor how many I am or will be. I'd love to be able to touch a bell and summon the real me, because if I really need myself, I mustn't disappear. I would like to also know if others go through the same things that I do, have as many selves as I have, and see themselves similarly. And when I've exhausted this whole problem, I'm going to study so hard that when I explain myself, I'll be talking geography. I love that line. When I explain myself, I'll be talking geography. Because I'd like to talk about our identity a bit. Uh, I think that at, at the core of, of Buddhism, and certainly Buddhist philosophy, is the question of identity, the question of who we are. It's uh, the perennial question of, of many esoteric traditions. Um, the Hopi say, uh, where did I come from? Where am I going? Who am I? That it's their three questions. Uh, Socrates, of course, said, know thyself. Uh, the Zen masters often put it in colorful language. Uh, who is it that goes in and out of these six sense doors? Who is it that's dragging this corpse around? <laughs> the question is uh, really at the core of how we feel about ourselves, how we think of ourselves and how we feel about ourselves and our lives. It's all determined by really how we define ourselves. Unfortunately, most of us are uh, born with a case of mistaken identity and uh, it takes us a lifetime to get over it. We believe that we are individual and in here and that the world is out there. Very seldom do we consider that we are of the world. We always think of ourselves as acting on the world very seldom realizing that the world is actually acting through us, that there is really no separation. In other words, we're, our identity is really fixated, and especially in our culture, on our individual drama, our individual psychological drama. Carl Jung once said, if, if you are depressed, you are too high up in your mind. You're way up there in that, that individual stuff. The Buddha didn't talk about 
healing ourselves by joining with some sort of cosmic consciousness or some kind of vast, you know, inexplicable spirit. He said, if you really want to understand your identity, if you really want to understand yourself, you have to go down into the body and explore who you are inside of this incarnation. He said, Any, everything we need to know for, about our liberation, for our liberation, can be found in this fathom-long body. There's, there's often the mistaken notion that the spiritual life is really about transcending. It's about going up and joining with uh, cosmic consciousness. And uh, the joke is, of course, that the spirit says, oh boy, we're getting out. But then discovers that the real journey is down into the nitty-gritty and goes, oh shit, we got to do this. <laughs> and the, the Buddha also, you know, not only was he concerned that we explore ourselves, <laughs> But he really was a scientist. You know, he was the first scientist. He was a spiritual biologist. He said, we developed this ability, we're given this gift as humans to have this ability to be able to observe ourselves with a kind of objectivity that's close to being scientific, which is what mindfulness is. You, you step out of the, the attachment of your drama uh, out of the identification with your drama and just observe and and examine with a kind of scientific objectivity. And he says, you go through and you examine this whole body and uh, the emotions and the thoughts and the whole the whole package that you're given, and you will discover that essentially it is not I, me, or mine. And that is the key to your liberation. And it's not like you get rid of your personality, which is often a, another mistake. I remember when we first started meditating, I, I was one, and I've talked to other people who also felt this way. We started meditating, we thought we would get a new personality, that we would become actually someone completely different someone who would be easier to live with, you know? <laughs> but 30 years, uh, you know, of doing this practice, and I basically have the same personality. I'm basically the same person. But I, I really have learned to not take it too personally. I realized that this is, I didn't choose to be me. As I said in the meditation, I am not my fault. I didn't choose to be me, and uh, I, I begin to take it all less personally. You know, I, I begin to see that my personality is actually acting itself out, living through me. It's not something I generate. And that's the beginning of liberation from that personality, because you see that you don't own it, really. Ramdas always talks about how he, he regards his personality as a pet. 
it's always with him and he takes care of it and feeds it and sometimes lets it off the leash, you know, but it's not really, it's not really who he is. But we don't get rid of the personality. Uh, and in fact, a caveat here about the self and the identity with this individual self. And that is to acknowledge that every living being has a self. Even the single-celled organisms have a membrane that goes around the body, a sense of their own integrity, and there's a world out there, and they are in here, and when there's something threatening in the environment, they retract the little membrane. When there's something, there's food or something enticing, they extend it. That is the nature of being alive. We get identified with this package. But what the Buddha discovered, and that what many people have discovered after him by doing his techniques of self-investigation, is that humans have this gift of being able to see through the membrane, through the separate self, and to understand the co-arising with all things, the coexistence, that we are not really separate. And with that understanding, with the easing off of the, of the attachment to an identity with this individual self, we find great relief and great ease, much more, we feel much more comfortable in our own skin. As I've been doing my practice over the years and uh, going through all sorts of different, you know, phases, and as it's just like a, you know, a great onion, you just keep taking off the peels and there's, oh, now, uh, you know, you get to the core and then there's another peel. And, I, I can't, I can't imagine, I don't know how many times, probably almost every retreat I've ever been on, and there have been a lot of them, I'll sit down and by the end of the retreat I'll say, now I get it, now I understand what this is all about, and it just keeps, you know, unfolding. There's just always new, new levels of this uh, master game this wonderful game of self-discovery and liberation. But uh, over the years, as I've been doing this practice, more and more, I've come to see that it really uh, is not about getting rid of the self or changing the personality. It's about expanding the sense of identity. And once you begin to understand that you are you are more than this little self, then this little self has a lot of space to move around in and it's not so um, ingrown, like a toenail, you know. It's, there, there's much more that you are. You are more, not less. And w the most accessible aspects of our identity are really to be found in the body, in our species self, in our mammalian self, uh, in our human self. I've come to really understand and, and, and appreciate 
the idea that this individual human life is first and foremost life with all the constraints and all the conditions that every life has. Secondly, it is human, and only thirdly and narrowly is it individual. It's, uh, it's so obvious, you know, and, and over the years I've been reading, there's a revolution going on right now in evolutionary science where they are continually finding evidence of how we are created, how this body is created, how this brain is created over the millennia, you know, through stages of, of uh, adaptation and changes. And the Buddha, the Buddha said, this body is not mine or anyone else's. It has arisen due to causes and conditions. This is the Buddha 2,500 years ago. Maybe he was referring to that evolution in a kind of different context, but he understood that, that you don't create this, that this is what is given as a, when you take birth as a human and as a, a species of, of life, a member of a species. When you're really identified with your individual personality, all of your problems and suffering is due to how you were toilet trained, right? <laughs> Has nothing to do with the fact that you got a nervous system, which is really at the very core of why you suffer. You got nerves. And then you got this uh, limbic system, this, uh, you know, that evolved. Uh, through, through the mammalian, uh, the course of mammalian evolution, this limbic system that learns uh, this sort of very complicated way of avoiding danger and uh, heading towards opportunity that we call emotion, that is really built in. You know, it's not our emotions. It is evolution's emotions, wonderful adaptations teach us how to be much more uh, successful at survival. May have run into a glitch recently, but uh, marvelous tools, you know, certainly cause for wonder. But when we get too lost in them as I, me, mine, they, they create great suffering for us. I love, I have stacks of, of books about evolutionary biology at home, most of which I have not read, but <laughs> I've, I've read some really, a few uh, good ones, and there is, it, the information I find so powerful as, as a support for what the Buddha taught, and uh, uh, I mean, I think that if we look at science and dig, and we can find the spiritual message of science, that it's, we should no longer let science be for the scientists and the engineers because you know what they do with it. They just, you know, make new machines and bombs and whatever. Not that it, they haven't given us a lot of comforts, but 
the spiritual message of science is very liberating and unifying and forgiving. And this is uh, a uh, neuroscientist, uh, an anthropologist named Melvin Connor. The motivational portions of our brain, particularly the hypothalamus, have characteristics relevant to the apparent chronic nature of human dissatisfaction. Experiments on the lateral hypothalamus suggest that our chronic internal state will be a vague mixture of anxiety and desire, best described by the phrase, I want, spoken with or without an object for the verb. In other words, your kind of state of perpetual dissatisfaction is built in. And it's good for you. <laughs> Remember, it's good for you. Um, but it's not yours. And that is the beginning of being free of it, is understanding its nature. Um, because what we understand through meditation, uh, through experimentation, is that the human being can actually overcome the instincts that we are given by nature. We can overcome many of the built-in defects that cause us suffering. which is why we have this precious, precious human condition. Joanna Macy puts it this way. She says, don't think of being liberated from life. Think of being liberated into life. Into life, through life. Becoming more and more intimate with your identity as a member of a species developing what I call evolutionary wisdom. It is very, very liberating. That's why in the guided meditation today, I, I wanted to take us through that sort of basic, uh, basic identity as a, a being composed of the elements of earth and air and fire, you know, the heat of the sun. All of that is you know, who, who we are as a body. Um, and then to begin to see the thoughts as generic, the process of thinking. More and more, I like to tell people when we sit down to meditate, you're not doing this as an individual or for your own individual good, but we're doing this as a species. And what's really forgiving, you see yourself in this picture of, of, of evolution, what's really forgiving is to realize how we are a baby species. We just got these big brains about 200, 100 to 200,000 years ago, which in biological time is just a moment. You know, I mean, Biological time, we talk millions and millions and millions of years. 
basically we just got these big brains and don't know how to use them very well yet. So if you sit down and meditate and think, well, okay, I should, all right, I'm going to just take this brain and be mindful. And then you have all this trouble and, you know, immediately it's like, oh, I can't do this and everybody else is doing it. Nobody else is doing it. We're all got, we all got the same equipment. We're all having the same problem. We're doing this as a species. And we're awakening as a species. When we think of it that way, we realize that what, what this project is about is it's much bigger than, than us as individuals. And that immediately takes sort of the, the individual identification out of it. Uh, we're doing this as a group for our group. We're awakening as a species. I, I point out, uh, and uh, this, is, this is always what excites me and, it, and uh, inspires me, is to think that the Buddha and Socrates and Lao Tzu were just uh, 2,500 years ago. That's just yesterday, you know. Uh, remember Cro-Magnon people who had the, maybe the first to have elaborate burial rituals and make masks and jewelry and stuff, and probably the first people to really sort of have developed that self-awareness, what we now take for granted, that kind of self-awareness. But um, that was 50,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago. Socrates, the Buddha, Lao Tzu. Then we have Darwin and Freud and Jung and Einstein and Hubble and these amazing Western minds that have totally transformed our understanding of ourselves are basically our contemporaries. This is a whole new game, this understanding that we have and these tools that we are using for our awakening. It's, it's both very exciting and very forgiving to, to see ourselves in that, in that story, in that picture. That's why I, I, really, I really love uh, what is happening in, in the sciences, and I like to bring it into, into the Buddhist uh, Sangha because it, it really supports what we're doing, and it gives it a whole, a whole new, new perspective and flavor. Um, couple of other things that, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, today I was driving in, uh, there was a big story on the news about identity theft. <laughs> I thought, here, come, take it, take it, <laughs> please. Um, One of the most important in, uh, discoveries of the 20th century uh, is doctor, made by a, a man named Dr. Paul McLean at the National Institute of Mental Health, uh, who discovered that we don't really have a brain. We have three brains. He called it the triune brain theory. And he was a uh, evolutionary scientist, basically about a brain scientist, but he, he 
did research on how the brain develops in the womb and realized that the brain develops in the womb, we each develop our own brain in the same way that the brain developed in nature, just as in the womb we go through the, we cycle through the DNA of fish and amphibian and I think there's a, a point in the embryo, embryonic stage uh, where we, we resemble the embryo of a chicken. Uh, you know, we, we cycle through all these DNA instructions and then, you know, we get to be the human. We also, the brain develops in, the, in, a, in a similar way. We first get a brain stem, which has been referred to as the reptilian brain, which regulates heat and uh, breathing and sex drive, very basic stuff. And then over that is grown another uh, part of the brain called the limbic system, the mammalian brain, which is much more uh, complex, a lot more uh, neurons, uh, has a lot more nuance, can, uh, has, a, has a sort of rudimentary memory, can you know, smell something, know that that means danger, um, all sorts of things like that. And then we get the new neocortex, the new human brain that grows around that. And uh, Dr. McLean also discovered that not only does uh, the brain grow like that, and it, he, he, uh, he discovered that one brain doesn't override the other two brains that in fact they're all very intricately connected and in fact in very important decisions most often the lower brains are the ones where the most activity is going on and in fact the lower two brains uh, are usually pretty fully engaged, 100% engaged and we only use about 20-30% of our new human brains um, there is some speculation that we use that 20 or 30 percent just to make excuses for the <laughs> behavior generated by the other two brains. But what, and what basically the, the new human brain does is weave everything, all of our experience, into a story that we have. It, it's, and the left hemisphere of the new human brain is sometimes called the interpreter. Uh, interpreter program which weaves um, weaves our story together give us a gives us a sense of time and the story going on over time and there, therefore a sense of our individual uh, existence there's some stories with hypno, uh, hypnotists there's stories with uh, where, where the corpus callosum gets severed and so the two parts of the brain are not connected and then experiments are done with people who, who've had that happen to them. And the right hemisphere of the brain apparently can understand very simple language, simple instructions, <laughs> syllables and things, but can't really generate a lot of language. Um, They'll flash instructions to the right hemisphere of the brain. They do this through working with, uh, you know, the eyesight and stuff. Until 
the person to do something, and the person will do what was they were told to do, and then the researcher will ask them what what they just did, and they will weave what they just did into something that makes sense to them. Uh, one example of this, a, a hypnosis uh, case, where the hypnotic suggestion was that after, when, when, when the suggestion was made, the, the person who was the, uh, the patient was, going, was supposed to get down on the ground and crawl around on the floor when the hypnotist made the suggestion. So he was brought out of hypnosis and then the hypnotist made the suggestion and the guy got down and started crawling around on the floor. And the hypnotist said, what are you doing? And the guy said, well, I'm thinking of buying some new carpet. And I, <laughs> that it was woven, that this, the, the, the behavior was woven into something that made sense. It was the interpreter program at work. But what uh, more and more the neuroscientists are discovering is, uh, that so much of our behavior and our uh, our lives are ruled by these these other two brains. I I like to think of it as you know that we all have this little lizard and this little lemur inside of us, and we can give them the the best thing we can do is become familiar with them. That's the only way we can have any freedom at all. If we aren't aware of them, then we, we go about under the illusion that we are controlling our behavior, uh, which is always the biggest shock in, for meditators. You know, when you first go to a retreat and you sit down and, oh, geez, I don't, you know, this is out of control. Um, but you start to become aware of how that works. In meditation, you can actually see the instinctual brain working. You see how you get caught by this and that. Uh, you know, notice when you get caught in, in thought, lost in thought, just uh, make, make some little analysis of it, you know, in, in your daily meditation and realize how much of it has to do with basic survival. It's your planning, you know, your where you fit in the, maybe where you fit in the food chain somewhere, you know. We have an elaborate food chain here in our social lives and our civilization, but all a lot of it has to do with your survival as a human, as a male or female, as a you know, as a member of this this species. Uh, and then to understand it as that is so liberating. It's so freeing. That's why I, my, my mantras, it's perfectly human. It's only natural. I mean, the sex drive, you know, the desire to stay alive, the sadness of loss, the hunger, it's all part of the package of this mammalian existence. We're mid-sized mammals. You know, I mean, just feel yourself. Can you feel it? 
You know, you got this long spine and the head that sits there, and these limbs that go off the off the uh, torso there. And uh, I'm I'm always amazed that it took us so long to look at the you know, look at the apes and not get it. You know, that that evolution's just 150 years old. That's because we didn't really want to admit it. You know, that we were specially created and specially put on this planet to run things. You know, that was, that's been our belief for most of our history. And now we're starting to, you know, get over it. I mean, the Buddha framed it in a whole other way, in a kind of spiritual lib- liberation way, saying, we are not who we think we are. You know, we are not these, uh, these individuals. Um, and now we're framing it, of course, in a, in, a, in a much different way, in a scientific way, but the really, the message is the same thing. But it's very exciting. I think it's a very exciting time to be alive and uh, to make use of these tools. I'm sure if the Buddha was around today, he would put in his discourses, you know, Hero Monks, uh, the National Institute of Mental Health has just released a study saying <laughs> most of our mental activity goes on on what the scientists call a subpersonal level. Do you know that your brain processes approximately 11 million bits of information a second? Just monitoring everything that's going on the most complex, amazing organ, just astonishing. And, and you hardly have to lift a finger. I mean, you, you know, you're focused on what I'm saying, but even that, you know, your brain's immediately in making meaning out of this jumble of sounds that are coming and hitting your eardrum. Uh, phenomenal instrument. Um, Anyway, could go on and on and on. Uh, so why don't we, why don't I stop <laughs> and let you add to this conversation or, you know, raise questions or, you know, and I'll do my best. I'm not a, I'm not a, a scientist per se. I'm, I'm fascinated by the, the subject of, uh, evolutionary biology, and uh, I, I wrote a book called Buddha's Nature, which, uh, in which I tried to integrate the two in a very simple way, going through the four foundations of mindfulness that the Buddha prescribed, and showing how, in different ways, the biologists uh, were right along with him. So, anyone... Yes. Um, my husband and I just became grandparents for the first time, and we spent about a week and a half with our new granddaughter. And the weirdest thing I wanted to call her was my precious being. It just it sounds a little hokey, but I love it. She's being. Precious being. Being. Yes. Being Harper, but I call her precious being. And I think that um, what you said today 
he fell in love with her, of course. And part of it was because she's so cute, and you sit there and you watch her, and you watch her little movements and hear her sounds. And but I think too, we fell in love, at least for me, we fell in love with this little self that doesn't have the personality yet that we can see, and knowing that that's going to happen, and darn it, but that's but it's <laughs> you know what I mean. It's, it's, it's just so wonderful. Experience this new life uh -huh. in a, with a new understanding because now I'm older and, and so on. And it was just it was really wonderful. That's great. That's great. Did you did you think that maybe part of your love for this little child was because some of your DNA was in there? <laughs> well, actually, I'm not biologically related. Oh. My stepdaughter's child. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Did you, did you see your DNA in it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but a thought I had as I looked at her, and one of the things that happened was we were able to hold on to her for, hold on to for like two hours at a time. She was the hour, because she would feed, and then there would be a question, should we put her down? Or not. Uh -huh. No choice. Uh -huh. To hold her and to look into her face. Uh -huh. and, and actually, there was, it reminded me of the book Sephora, because as I looked into her face, I was taken into, I saw her when she was 15. Mm. You know, her looking that long. Oh, yes. Time, some, I did some kind of visual travel. And that was magical. And I've I've always felt that, you know, again, as you said, we what, we don't choose to be here. We're given the gift. We, mm -hmm. we arrive. I, I didn't have anything to do with it. Yeah. And my parents didn't have anything to do with it either. Right. They just were the vehicle. So it's always been magical that way to me. And to see her, and, and then again, I'll go on a minute, Wordsworth said this idea that we are born Mm-hmm. Love it. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you. Because it reminds me that, you know, uh, and this seems to be something that arises when you start talking about science, that people get kind of defensive and say, oh, but that takes all the, somehow the wonder out of it, the glory out of it. Or I, I don't find that at all. I think thinking about, a, uh, you know, all of the processes that have taken place to create us as we are now just adds to the mystery and the and the awesome nature of it i mean you know we're pieces of the universe that can wonder about itself you know i mean wonder about the universe and wonder about it but it's phenomenal it's at least you know as far as we know we look at ourselves and we look at inanimate matter and we look at 
other creatures that don't seem to have this ability and the complexity. Yes. Um, two things. One is there's an extraordinary show in Los Angeles at the Science Museum. Of I've heard about it. Did you see it? You, you, you really, given what your your interests are, I think you'd be fascinated. It's, it's, a, it's a show of human bodies that some mad scientist has taken apart, dissected, and, and opened up and preserved. And the complexity of that he's talking about, that you're talking about, is there before you. It, it really is. Mm hmm. I've heard it's just stunning, yeah. Yes, yes. How could it possibly have happened? Well, the scientists do. I mean, the guy who, uh, who discovered the DNA, uh, Watson or Crick, one of the two, said this could not, the, the complexity could not have happened through natural selection over just the three and a half billion years that we we presume it's happened, and he came up with this theory called uh, panspermia that we must have been seeded with with the DNA already developed because it's just too astounding otherwise. I agree. I've read his, his books. They're really interesting if you haven't read those. But one other thing I wanted to say in connection with this show at the science museum is that one of the things they have is a sequence of fetuses starts with this step. And pretty soon it's human. Yeah. It long. But here's what I really wanted to get into. I didn't see any of these intervening evolutionary stages that I've always thought were there and that you mentioned. You know, I don't see anything in fish. I didn't see it in, I don't know what else you think is there. They're not, if it's there, I can tell you I didn't see it. Mm-hmm. Well, they, they're there. They're the. They're, it's as if when the arms start to develop, there is the the perfect um, replica of the beginning of fins will appear, and and it turns out that the structure of the arms and hands has a very similar uh, pattern as as a fish's fins. I mean, you maybe don't see the you don't see the fins, don't see right? Right. You don't see the fins, but the the uh, pattern is is there. It's you you cycle through those stages, and it just doesn't grow as a fin grows as an arm. That's great. I want to see that, and I'm sure it'll come to San Francisco because it's getting such raves. So far, it's not. No, but it's it, it will. It's in Chicago now. I I believe it. They just extended it in L.A. Oh, they, yeah, right. They opened a, actually, I think they opened a second one, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. My favorite, one of my favorite science facts, this, was, this is a knockout. You know about the DNA is basically uh, this long string of coded information and uh, that, that determines, uh, it gives... Instructions for growing proteins and making the whole system work. And the DNA uh, is, is really um, just about a molecule or two wide. It's really the thinnest little strand you could possibly imagine. So 
you have about uh, 50 to 100 trillion cells in your body. Life has gone from a single-celled being to a being with a 50 to 100 trillion cells. That's you. Each cell is millions and millions of times smaller than the tip of a pinhead. They're just, you know, so small you can't imagine it. Inside each one of your cells is a drop of seawater. Quite literally, a drop of seawater. Floating in that drop of seawater is a strand of DNA two yards long. If stretched out, it would be two yards long. The reason it can be, be all that, that compressed is because it's wrapped millions of times around itself and it's only that thin, that, you know, couple molecules wide. So, and that's the... That's the code for building and maintaining you, right? It's in the DNA. If you took your DNA, all of it, and stretched it out end to end, it would go around the planet several thousand times. The instructions for building and maintaining you go around the planet several thousand times. Do the math, you know, 50 trillion cells, two yards in each cell, Phenomenal complexity. Phenomenal. And you don't have to lift a finger. <laughs> um, I've been thinking a lot, uh, lately about how intelligent that system is and, and how trees are very intelligent. Everything around us, there is intelligence. But yet I'm wondering, how would you respond to somebody who refutes evolution and said, or says, what's the say, intelligent design? Yeah, you know, I don't find any contradiction. Uh, there was a, actually a, a New York Times editorial last week, maybe, or two weeks ago, by a man named Bethe, B-E-H-E. Behe, okay, some strange name, but, um, and he was trying to make that same case, that evolution, you can believe in evolution and that this is how the process takes place, and still believe that there is some kind of uh, seed within it or design within it that, that, uh, there are laws governing it. Now, it could be that, you know, the laws, uh, you know, if con certain conditions had been different, the process would have developed a different way, which is what the evolutionists always, they're always re trying to refute the idea that this had to happen this way. I think. <laughs> is that, <laughs> maybe actually... I think it's a bogus division, to tell you the truth. I think that there's something going on here that we don't understand. That's quite, we find it quite amazing. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's self-pride as a living being and as a conscious living being. But um, 
the scientists want to say, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean there's a creator, but I, there's a mystery. I think I don't think there's a scientist alive who will tell you that science knows what the mystery is, or how it, uh, you know, or or that will come to the end point, you know. I remember when I first uh, read the existentialists who, who told me that uh, we can't figure it out. We're just, you know, how do you know the nature of a box when you're inside of it? You can't know it. And that, so we're, and, and then I always felt like, ah, oh, okay, I'm not the only one who doesn't get it. It's just the way it is. We, we, we won't understand it. Yeah, I was wondering if you saw um, the movie What the Bleep, and um, it, it's a lot of what you were talking about with regard to neuroscience. Um, reminding me of that movie, it's a huge, really fascinating movie. I did. I did see part of it. I didn't like it very much, oh, but yeah. Uh -huh. Why didn't you like it? I just didn't think it was put together very well. They didn't identify the people who were talking, and I, I mean, I just, I just didn't. Or the structure of the movie. Yeah, the structure of it, I didn't like at all. Yeah. Well, what really fascinated me was the part about um, emotions and peptides, and um, how we get addicted to creating the same kind of. Um, brain chemistry, uh, you know, I, that is created by, let's say, afflictive emotions. And uh -huh. tend to go there. And um, what an alternative is, uh, you know, how we can be free from those things. Mm -hmm. You know, made aware of them and made and have new imprints and, and new peptides. Yes. And that whole area is yes. fascinating. It is fascinating. How can we change, you know, what we're given? How, you know, first of all, we, we examine what we're given, we accept what we're given, and more and more studies, uh, research with meditators, uh, especially like people who don't do long-term retreats, enticement, enticement, uh, is um, that actually you can change the whole pattern of how the brain works and its tendency to go into afflictive states, uh, that this can be altered uh, with this power of, of, of being able to pay attention and not identify. The minute, the minute you don't identify with the experience, you just see it as an experience unfolding. You realize you didn't even, you didn't generate it, and uh, Suddenly you're you're free of it. It's sort of like a, you know you if you don't see the knot, you'll never be able to untie it. But we can get too optimistic too. I mean, and idealistic about. If there's any one thing I've learned in in my years of meditation, it's how stubborn the system is, how hard it is to change it. And relaxing around that is also 
a very important step in 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 succeeding in that <laughs> relaxing around that is a is a step towards su- succeeding in that it's really acknowledging you know the uh how how powerful the conditioning <laughs> is Totally. Yes. Yes. Right. And and how far do you go in forgiving even, you know, your own your own self and say, well, it's not my responsibility because I was just given this package and, you know, yeah, it's a it's a it's a, an edge that we have to play. Um, and and the world is is very much with many of us these days, very intensely with us, and we 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 try not to. I think if if we understand ourselves really f- from this sense of being members of a species that are just barely awakening now, that we then tend not to blame others. That doesn't mean we we don't put our vision and our understanding of how we can grow with less suffering, how we can proceed with less suffering. We put that out there, even though we don't blame anybody. I have I have something I want to read to you now that you brought this up. Earth is clearly more built over than ever before. All parts of it are trampled, full of trade. Fields drive back the forests. Even rocks are cultivated, swamps are drained. Today's towns outnumber yesterday's houses. Everywhere are residences, peoples, governments, life, and this above all proves humans' drastic growth. We so clog the universe it can barely support us. As our needs increase, we struggle with each other for them, and nature fails us. That was written by Terulian in 150 A.D. I just thought that was a kind of interesting... We're always in crisis, you know, I mean, it's, 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 but again, it doesn't, again, that's the edge that you play, you know, 
uh, it's both understanding and then uh, trying to act in a compassionate and, a, and a useful way. Because that's, I mean, it's, it's, it's again, it's that sort of uh, great accordion folder of, of perspectives, you know, here you are, here's, uh, you know, this individual and the, your psychological drama, and then there's this human, the perspective that, you know, this individual's just taking part in this human story. And then there's this life story uh, of life on earth. And within that, there's other little folders. There's the cultural folder that you're born into a particular time and a moment in history where you have to deal with a particular culture which has huge influence on how you feel about your life. I mean, and never before has the individual been so stressed and honored and sort of focused on, you know, that our, our, we're, we, it feels to me like part of the reason there's this hunger for Buddhism and, and meditation is to, is because of the intense focus on the individual, you know, it's never been, I don't think, this strong. That, that's another perspective that we see ourselves in, uh, a member of a particular culture. There are all these full, all these ways of understanding ourselves that allow us to see ourselves not quite so much as individuals, but as members of these much larger groups, and our own awakening as part of uh, a much bigger project. Anyway, thank you for bringing that up, and uh, you know it's. The world is really impinging. It feels like it's impinging, but then remember that just a couple hundred years ago, you wouldn't have known about anything happening in the world except what was happening in your village. You know, and uh, Farmer Brown is causing lots of trouble. We better get the whole village and go and confront Farmer Brown and. <laughs> Huh? Yeah, I know. We'd all want to go back to that. The humorist P.J. O'Rourke said, if you want to go back to, you know, that simple, the simple peasant days, I have one word for you. Dentistry. (laughs) (laughs) And how many of us would be without teeth today, you know? Yes. I'm having a problem, and it's not the first time I've had a problem with this concept, but the, the idea of it is not my fault that I am what I am. And the problem I have with it is that if you look at what's happening in the world, and everybody felt that way, then it would be even worse than it is. And, mm-hmm. and my feeling is that, yeah, that's a lot of... What, what's happening is that people do feel, well, they can't help themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, and they have to be bestial, 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 that's the word. <laughs> Say that bestial? Bestial, yeah. And cruel to other human beings. Yeah. Because, uh, well, that's the way it is. Yeah. 
Well, I don't think it works that. I mean, I, I understand that that feeling, and I think I think that it has to do with what you were saying too about taking responsibility or not acting. People will act the way they act, whether or not they see it, whether or not they understand it. Actually, that's not true. <laughs> when you actually see it, then you have the choice as to whether to act that way or not. When you don't see it, you have to act that way. You have to act according to your unfolding personality and instincts. It's only when you begin to see that you you are driven and you are conditioned by these you know the past and and who you're what you're born as that you can begin to change that behavior and have a different approach to the world. I mean look at all the people who said let's create a different society. Let's have a society where everybody shares, nobody owns anything. They turned into beasts. It didn't work. One of the reasons I think it didn't work is because they didn't really understand themselves. They didn't really... And, and they also eliminated all kinds of spiritual... Uh, uh, feelings. They, they cut out all the ritual that sort of connects you to the mystery of things. Um, I don't think it works that way. Do you know what I'm saying? I think so. Yeah. We only really take responsibility when we understand how our impulses work and how we can overcome them. But at the same time, we don't blame ourselves for being away. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, it's sort of like the same issue with mindfulness. You know, you come and you start learning mindfulness, and then you think, well, all right, I'm going to go out and I'm going to be mindful all day. And, you know, you fail immediately, and you fail all day, and... <laughs> When you, you know, I mean, it could be just cause immense suffering for you, but if you begin to understand that that is, it's just where you, where we are, it's where we are, then the whole thing begins to have a, take on a different, a different feel and a different flavor. And you, you are, help, you are starting to take responsibility and you're just starting to awaken and that's good. And you're going to lose it a, a, a lot. Okay, one more, and then we—I think we—we we are done. There's a wonderful little poem by Robert Frost that helps me dealing with this kind of thing, and it goes, "Dear Lord, forgive my little jokes on thee, and I'll forgive thy big one on thee." <laughs> <laughs> Right. <laughs> or as, as uh, Nietzsche said, uh, 
God's only excuse is that he doesn't exist. <laughs> Let's just sit for a minute before we go and just uh, be quiet for a minute. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.